You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. Well, good morning, Faith Church. For those of you that do not know me, my name is Logan Hull. I'm the student director here at Faith Church, and I have the privilege of leading and teaching us in God's Word this morning. Um, so we're going to continue in our Esther series. So if you weren't here last week when we started, no worries. I wasn't here either, so we're in the same boat. We're good to go. And this is a little side note, but me and Sarah, whenever we go on vacation, we love church. So every time we're gone, we go find a church to go to. And in doing that, sometimes we go to multiple churches on Sunday because we love church and we love being with believers. So I just want to let you know if this is your first time here or if this is your hundredth time here, we at Faith Church love having you here and we love being able to lead you, pour into you, and watch you grow in your faith. So with that being said, if you have your Bible or your Bible app, you can turn with us to Esther this morning. And if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles in the back. And if you don't know, you know, your way around the Bible that well, we'll have the passage on the screen up here for you. So if you would, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? We believe that God's Word is living and breathing, and we stand out of reverence for it. Esther 4, 12-16, And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So what I'm going to do to kind of start is I'm just going to recap, kind of follow along with what Dylan preached on last week, and then flow into what we're going to look at today. Today we're going to be in chapters 3 and 4. But if you weren't here last week, basically the summary of what happened so far is there's a king, King Xerxes, and he's the king of all of the Persian Empire. And what he's doing is he basically is a proud man who wants to show off all his power and wealth. So he throws this party. It's 180 days long. Now, when I read that, I'm like, that's a little excessive, but okay. I mean, you got the wealth, you got the money, go for it. So it's a 180-day party, and you know, they're going, they're doing their thing. As much as they can have to eat, as much as they can have to drink, the king has supplied it all. He's showing how wealthy and powerful he is. And then he tells the eunuchs to go get his wife, Queen Vashti. They go to get the queen. The queen refuses to come. And now what happens is the king is in public embarrassment that his wife doesn't even want to be around him. And so, and trying to figure out what's going to happen, he just gets frustrated and banishes the queen from ever being in his presence again. Because that seems like the right thing to do. You know, someone doesn't like you, say, all right, I never want to see your face again. At least that's what the king does because he's all powerful and that's what he wants to do. And then he's like, well, I need a new queen now. So they basically throw a beauty pageant for the entire kingdom. And Many women are going through this beauty pageant, and then he finds this one girl named Esther. 
Esther is adopted by her cousin Mordecai because she doesn't have any parents. And Mordecai is her older cousin who comes from Jewish descent. And, and Esther as well is a Jew. But Mordecai forbids her to tell the king or anyone that she's Jewish. And so he's to, she's told to hold her nationality and keep it a secret. In doing so, the king finds favor in Esther above all the other women and wants her to become the queen. And then at the end of chapter 2, we have these two guards at the king's gates, and they're talking about assassinating the king. And then Mordecai overhears them. He tells Esther. Esther tells the king and gives credit to Mordecai. And then that's kind of where the chapter closes. And what's interesting, though, I want you to think about that. right? Esther gives credit to Mordecai. So you think the king probably has some favor with Mordecai, like, wow, this guy just saved my life. I, I really appreciate him. He's a pretty, pretty solid dude. Well, we're, where we're going to pick up today is chapter 3. In chapter 3, there's a man that rises from the king's government and becomes second in command, and his name's Haman. And Haman, he's the guy that you don't really like. Like, if you ever watch a movie or you read a story and there's that one guy that you're just like, man, I can't wait until they're out of the picture, that's Haman. And you'll see why in a second. But as we begin, I want you to see that Haman is a lot like the king, which tends to happen when people have power, right? They, they want respect. They want people to bow down to them, do as they say. So as Haman walks up to the king's gates, we see that everyone bows down to him except for one. And that one person is Mordecai, right? And, and this is where it gets interesting because Mordecai, right, should have the respect of the king because he just saved his life. But now Haman is just, doesn't know what to do. He's just upset and frustrated. And he's so mad with Mordecai. He doesn't only want to destroy him and get rid of him. He wants to destroy all of Mordecai's people. He wants to destroy all of the Jews and wipe them out, get them away. He doesn't want to see another Jew. So what he does is he casts lots to figure out when is, when is the time for the Jews' destruction going to be. He casts his lots, and then it lands on the 12th month, which in that calendar time, it's around, basically, it's our March, what we know as March. And so it's the 12th month of the year on the 13th day. And then he goes to the king, and he tells the king, hey, look, we have a people group within our kingdom, and... They're just, they're different than everyone else. We don't really need them. I, I think it's in our best interest not to have them within the kingdom. And here's the, here's the deal. If you let me wipe them all out, I'll take all their money and I'll give it to you, king. So then King Xerxes looks at him and says, hey, I don't need the money. But he gives him his signet ring. And the signet ring basically is a symbol that shows you that you have the power to make the decision. That you can do whatever you want. So the king gives him his signet ring. He says, I don't need the money, but do with the people as you want. And so that's where we're going to be picking up today and we're looking at the rest of the story. We're going to be doing a lot of reading, so it's going to be a little different. But, but I want to open up real quick with an idea before we get into reading this passage. Have you ever heard of the phrase, right place, right time? Because as, as we get into this passage, I think you're going to see this thing kind of happening like, wow. Esther seems to be at, in the right place at the right time. And if you think about that, I want you to try to think of a story. Maybe you were in the right place at the right time. For me, there's one that comes to mind. And it's when I was a little kid. Honestly, I don't have a great memory, so I don't know how little I was. But I know that the year before, it was when I first learned to swim. 
I learned to swim in a lazy river. So, you know, not really swimming. It's more like it's pushed me around, but I'm floating, and I think, well, I'm swimming. So in Georgia, here's the thing. You don't swim year-round. When it gets cold, you close the pool off. Summer comes around, you open it back up. Well, my cousins were also my neighbors, and they had a pool. And summer comes around the next year after I learned how to swim. And they pull the tarp off. Pool's ready to go. I run down there. And here's the thing. This, this is why I say right place, right time, because it was my cousin's house. But halftime, we went swimming. My cousins weren't home. Very rarely did they come and swim with us if they were out there because they were a good bit older than us. So what happens is my older cousin just so happens to be out there with me. I don't know why. They're usually not out there. And then he's at the same corner of the pool that I was, am going to be at here in a second. So he's out in that corner. And I go full sprint, running down. And then like, well, back of the street, my mom's like, do you know how to swim? And he's like, yeah, I learned last year. So then I take off running. I go booking it down in the pool, go jump straight into the deep end. Here's what I do. I don't flail. I don't splash. I don't float. I just sink straight down to the bottom. There I go. But hey, I thought I knew how to swim, so I was fully confident. Well, luckily, I jump right into the same corner that my cousin's standing at, and he reaches in, pulls me out, and then he's probably, you know, what are you thinking, you idiot, and you don't know how to swim? But here's the thing is, I'm thinking, man, right place, right time. Because if not, I would have been sinking down to the bottom, probably just looking up like, well, here we are. And because obviously I didn't even try to swim, I just sank. So good for me. But I was thinking, man, right place, right time. And then I'm, I'm titled this sermon, though, Right Place, God's Time. And, and you'll see why as we get into this story. But it got me thinking um, as we read the story of, wow, Esther seems to be in the right place, right time. But then I got to thinking, no, she's in the right place in God's time. And I think it's the same for every single person who's in here today. If you think that you just somehow walked in here or it's just your normal Sunday, I think that coincidence or not, I think there is purpose in your being here. God knew you were going to be here. And wherever you're at in your life, wherever you work, whatever school you go to, whatever you do, God knows exactly where you're at. And you're in the right place in God's timing. You're perfectly where God wants you. And I think that's what we're going to see in the story of Esther as well. And as Dylan talked about last week, we don't really see God in the story of Esther, I guess in a verbiage sense, but we see his handiwork all throughout the story of Esther. So I'm going to continue. I'm going to read this last little section of Esther 3, and then we're going to go in and we're going to kind of dive into the main text of Esther 4, and that's where we're going to stick in today. So right after uh, Haman goes to the king, gets the signet ring, and then says, nope, I don't need the money. Do with the people as you want. This is what happens. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. An edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors of all the provinces and the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Asuerus and sealed with a king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day. So they're not just going to wipe them out. They're going to do it quick. When that day comes, it's one day, done and gone, Jews never to be seen again. So they mean business. Haman is mad and he wants it done. 
in the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which was the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods, a copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Man, so there's a lot to unpack here, but basically what happens is Haman gets this written down in every single language, posted around town so that every Jew and every person knows that the Jews are going to be destroyed on the 13th day of the 12th month, all on the same day. It's just like a free-for-all, like find a Jew, take him out. There you go. Have a good day. That's literally what Haman's saying. He said, I don't even care about him anymore. I'm so mad at Mordecai that I'm going to take out every single Jew. And then I, my first thought, as soon as I read this, before we even get to the next chapter, you'll, you'll see exactly what the Jews are thinking. But I thought, man, what if you were a Jew and you walked around town and you saw this and you read it and then you found out, wow, I have 12 months to live. That's it. 12 months. That's all I have left. And there's nothing I can do about it. I just have to wait until that time. So they're probably in such distress. And then at the end of chapter 3, it says that the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So while everyone's going crazy and everyone's, you know, freaking out what's going to happen, the king and Haman are sitting down enjoying a drink, probably laughing about all these people, probably thinking, man, those people are probably so scared. That's so funny here. Cheers. Right? They're just hanging out, having a good time, not a care in the world. And then starting in chapter 4, we see that Mordecai is running around in distress. And he, put, he tears off his clothes, throws a sackcloth, and puts on ashes. And basically what this represents is a sackcloth is like a rugged, rough material. And it's symbolizing that he is in turmoil. His life is in turmoil. And the ashes represent mourning and grief of death that is to come and, and sadness. So he, he's running around, crying throughout the city, and he comes up to the king's gates. And along with him are all the other Jews that are also in sackcloth and ashes, crying and mourning, because every single Jew knows what's going on. Every single Jew except Esther. Because remember, Esther has, is forbidden to tell her identity. So no one in the kingdom is going to tell her that, hey, all the Jews are going to be destroyed, because why? It shouldn't matter to her. So then she hears of Mordecai sitting at the gate in sackcloth and ashes, and she tries to send a servant to go give him clothes. And then he, Mordecai says no, he denies him. And then Esther reaches out to one of her servants, Hathach, and gets him to go talk to Mordecai. And what we're going to read in chapter 4 is this conversation between Esther and Mordecai with Hathach being the middleman kind of going back and forth. So in chapter 4, verse 6, it says, Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain to her and command her to go to the king and beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, 
all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes into the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, to be put to death, except the one whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come to the king these 30 days. And we'll look at that real quick. Right, so Mordecai's saying, look, here's what you got to do. You're inside of the royal palace. Just go to the king and tell him, hey, look, you cannot destroy the Jews. You have to save the Jews. It, it sounds simple, right? You know, Mordecai sends her the edict that's sent out so she can read it. She can know what's going on. And then she replies, look, everyone within the palace, everyone within the kingdom, every single person here knows if you go see the king without being summoned, then you have one end result, death. The only way you get away with not being killed is if the king raises his scepter, his golden scepter, and says, look, I will spare your life. I will take away the punishment, and I will keep you free from death. That's the only way you get free. So it's really risky. It's probably like a 99 to 1% odds, right? She's going in there. She's thinking, man, if I go, Mordecai, I can't do this because if I go, I'm risking everything. I'm risking my life. And then, Mord and then they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. Now, before we move on, this is where I'm going to get into my first point. And you're thinking, wow, first point, we've been here for, what, 20 minutes already. Well, here's the thing. I'm not going to have that many long points. It's only two. But I want you to stick with me because this is the bulk of the message right here. We're going to look at, one, something that teaches us about who God is. And then we're going to look at how to apply it to our lives. So the first thing that this passage teaches us is of God's sovereignty. So we see here, it says, Mordecai told him, replied to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. And then he says, for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And I think this is really interesting, and there's something really powerful if you look at this, is that Mordecai is telling Esther, look, you have a choice. You can either keep silent or you can do something. And then he says that relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. If you keep silent, Esther, if you decide not to do a thing, look, that's on you. God will still hold his promise. He will still protect his people. And someone else will rise to do God's will. But here's something as well. If you choose not to, you and your father and your family will perish. You will be destroyed. So you can either take part in what God's doing, or you can say no, remain silent, and be destroyed. And what we see here is God's sovereignty all throughout. And it's the idea that no matter how powerful we think we may be, and you may find this offensive because it was offensive when I first heard it and when I let it sink in, but there is not a thing you can do to change God's will. You don't have the power. You don't have the ability. And frankly, in the grand scheme of things, you're not that important that you have the power to do so. 
And that allows us to be humble and understand, look, God has a will, he has a plan, and he's not making us do it, but he allows us to take part. Because if we think God is all-powerful and if we believe that in our heart, then why couldn't he just snap his fingers and everyone he wants to believe, everyone he knows who's going to believe, believes then and goes to heaven. But he doesn't do that. Right? He calls us to be the hands and the feet of Jesus Christ. Right? We just learned a couple weeks ago that we're great commissioned people. We're called to go out and serve. God wants to use us. He gives us the opportunity to serve in this eternal battle. Now, I think there's something really beautiful in that, if you can see it, is the idea that we can't deter God's plan, but yet God wants to use you. God can do it all by himself, but God wants to use you. And it's like this weird triangle of where God doesn't need us, but we desperately need God. And the world needs Jesus, so the world needs us. I hope you see that God doesn't need us, but we need God. And the world needs Jesus, and God's way of getting the world to know Jesus is through us. So we have the option, just like Esther here, are we going to go forth? Are we going to step into the battle we have at hand, step into what's at stake? Or are we going to let someone else rise and do what God called us to do. God's been teaching me that every single person has a purpose and a plan. There's a reason for your life. And going back to that same theme of this title, you're in the right place in God's time. If you think, man, you don't know about my life. You don't know the things I've done. You know, God's better off using someone else, trust me. You don't want to, there's no way I'm capable of doing it. If you knew my life, if you knew my sin, if you knew my struggles, God would not want to use me. He'd rather me stay silent. I'm going to tell you right now, that's the devil. He's lying to you because I can tell you right now, I wouldn't be up here if I thought I was adequate or capable because I'm not. And I'm not saying I am. I'm saying God is working through me, speaking through me because I decided, you know what? I'm going to live my life for God because he gave me the life. He gave me the purpose. He gave me my calling. And if I serve him, then I don't have to be capable. I don't have to be adequate. And you see, God always has to use broken people because that's all he has. So if you think that you're too broken or that God can't use you because you're broken, well, guess what? So is every single other person. And the world needs you. Right, so we have this choice at stake, and then we get into the most crucial part of this passage. For such a time as this, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai is saying, Esther, you have a choice. You can keep silent or you can do something. But what if you're in your position for such a time as this? Do you really think that you were became royalty just to thrive and have fun and escape what the Jews are going through? Do you really think that royalty was just given to you just because you can enjoy life? For such a time as this, God has created you for a purpose. And this is where we can see God's fingerprints all over this story. 
of how Esther was chosen, brought up, put into royalty, put into this position. She's a Jew. God is all over this story. And now she has the opportunity. And Mordecai is saying, Esther, I know it's risky. God doesn't call us to do easy things. If it was easy, everyone would do it. But he says, what if you were put in this position for such a time as this? To make a difference, to make a change. And I think there's two ways to apply this to our life. The first one, I think, that if there's someone in here who maybe hasn't fully accepted Christ, or maybe you're in here for the first time, or maybe you haven't been to church in a while, and you decided, I'm going to go to church, and you wound up here. I'm going to go back to the same thing. Right place, God's time. If you're here this morning, it's not because of accident. God knew you were going to be here. God wanted you to be here. And if you don't know Christ, I would urge you, what if you're here for such a time as this? What if you've never really given your life over to Christ because you still want to hold on to a little bit of control? You still want this area of your life. You want to follow God, but you don't want to have to give up the things that you enjoy. I think about it as royalty for Esther, right? She can either keep silent and keep all this royalty and life is good, and that's what the world offers. But you know what happens after the end of all that royalty? says that Esther will perish. So whatever Satan's telling you, no, you need to hold on to that. That part of the world, that part of your life, oh, it's so good. If you let go, you're not going to have joy. You're not going to have happiness. Well, yeah, you may have joy. You may have happiness. While temporarily that may satisfy, it's not eternal, and it doesn't last. And I want you to see that, that you can live in royalty. You can live in what you feel like is awesome. But there's a punishment. There's consequences for it. Or you can give your life to Christ and follow him knowing that he has a purpose for your life. He will give you joy. He can give you the fruit of the Spirit. And this is the beautiful thing about Christianity is that we're imperfect, but Christ makes us more perfect. Because through Christ, we can have access to the fruit of the Spirit. If we abide in Christ, He abides in us. We can have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. We can have everything that God Himself has, and we can be filled with the fullness of God. The Scripture tells us that if we pray to be filled with the fullness of God, God will dwell in us. So maybe you're here this morning for such a time as this, that God's saying, I've been trying to call you to me for quite some time, but you're here this morning because I want you to give it all up. What you think is royalty in your life is only going to fade. And then maybe the second part that God's saying is, is if you're already a Christian, you're already a believer, maybe you're at your workplace, maybe you're at your school, maybe you're, you're with your family, maybe you're where you're supposed to be right now for such a time as this. Because let's relate it back to the story, right? There's an end date for the Jews. Their death and destruction is coming. And Mordecai says, Esther, for such a time as this, you have to do something. God has put you here for a reason. Now, I'm not a rocket scientist, but if you look out, I'm pretty sure everyone can see that the world's pretty broken. 
I mean, you look around every corner and you just think, why, God, where are you? Where are you? And my answer would be, right here, in each and every one of us. And maybe you're in your circumstance, you're in your place, you're where you're at, your job, your school, your family, you're right where you're supposed to be in God's timing for such a time as this. The world is in need of the gospel. The world is in need of saving. And we can sit around and say, the world's broken. Man, God, where are you? He's in us and he wants to use us. We are the hands and the feet of the church. We're the hands and feet of Christ. If we don't go where God's calling us to, how can those who don't know Christ come to know him? You see, there's something more at stake here than just life or death. It's either eternity with God or eternity separated from him. And I think there's so much importance in that. If you can understand, if you're a Christian and you believe that, then every interaction you have with someone, every relationship with, you have with someone is important and matters. Because maybe you're their friend for such a time as this. Maybe you feel like they just keep coming around and you're like, man, why does this pe- person keep showing up in my life? Maybe for such a time as this. Maybe God has called you, equipped you, taught you everything you need to know so that you can teach someone else about Christ. Because the world is broken, the world is hurting, but God says, look, I have equipped you, you are ready. Maybe that person needs to be saved through your obedience. So for such a time as this, we are called to go out into the world. We are called to be a light to the brokenness, be a light in the darkness. And if we think, man, the world's so broken, God, where are you? Then we're missing the picture. Because God's all in it. His fingerprints are all over it. And maybe things have added up to your life where they put you in a situation where you've seen the little steps and you thought they were just coincidental that made you run into that person or made you get that job. Maybe it was coincidental or maybe God had his hand in it all. Because even if you can't see God, God's hand at work, you know that he's behind the scenes. You know that he's working, he's in it, he's for you, and his plans are to prosper you, not to harm you. If we can believe that this morning, then we can have faith and we can go in risking it all like Esther did. I want us to read the last little bit of this chapter. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. Listen to this. And if I perish, I perish. If I perish, I perish. There is something far greater than my own life at stake. Mordecai, I'll do it. God put me here for a reason. I'm going to do it. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. And I'm going to tell you, sometimes people say, oh, when, when you believe in Christ, when you follow him, when you do what he calls you to, life's good, you know, everything's going well for you. That's not always the case. 
Sometimes when you follow God and God calls you to do something, sometimes it's really hard. Sometimes your first instinct is, no, you kidding me? God, let's sit down and talk about this. But if we can have that faith, right? If I perish, I perish. If I suffer for this, I suffer for this. If I am made fun of, if I am outcasted, if I am shunned, that is okay because I know that Christ is working in and through me. Because there's a greater purpose behind it all. God is sovereign. God has you right where you are now in his perfect timing and in his perfect will. God will bring forth his promises. He will fulfill his promises. And if we don't go out and we don't share the gospel, then we will perish and God will find someone else to pick up where we left off. My encouragement, church, that we can be the difference in our community, in our workplace, in our school, in our environment, in our family, that if we feel like, man, I just wish they knew Christ, well, we can be the person that shows them Christ. We can be the person that lives out this faith. We don't just know this faith, but we live it out. We live and breathe Jesus. So when people see us, they see Jesus, and that's what makes the difference. You don't have to go and and smack everyone on the head with a Bible and say, you need to hear the word of God. No, you just live your life and live it obediently, and you share the gospel, and you show love to those, and then when they are loved, they say, well, why? I don't deserve that. Why are you always happy? Why do you always have joy? Life is really hard, but yet you have peace. You have happiness. What is this? And then boom, the gospel. You share it. See, for such a time as this, we are called to live faithful lives. Not just to be half in, half out. It's a very common Christianity we struggle with today. It's convenient but I don't know if it's really real. I want God when it's convenient for me on Sundays, Wednesdays, in my small group. The rest of the week, I want to do what I want to do. I'm in control of it. You see, if we can treat God and our relationship with God as a necessity and not as a commodity, we'll see a big difference in the way we live life because God wants to use you. For such a time as this, You have been placed in this church, in this community, in your family, in your work, in your school, in your environment, so that you can be a light to those around you. As we wrap up today, I'm going to pray and then we're going to end with a time of reflection. And if God's been working in your heart and you feel that there's something he's putting on your heart, just just be with him. God wants you. He doesn't want your good deeds, doesn't want your work. He just wants you. If you give him your heart, he'll transform your life. He'll renew your mind. He'll give you a new spirit. So just spend time with him this morning. Let's pray. Dear Lord, man, I just thank you so much for how much you love us. I just sit back sometimes and I'm in awe, looking at my flaws, looking at my sinfulness, but yet, Lord, you're so faithful. 
Even when I don't have my life right, Lord, you have your hand in it, guiding me, walking me through it, walking with me. Lord, we are never alone. Even when we stray away from you, you chase after us. Lord, you're far greater than the king we see in this story. You don't rule for the power. You don't rule to boast. You don't run around being prideful, trying to get everyone to see how great you are and making everyone else below you feel beneath you, Lord. But you are a great and mighty and powerful king who loves much harder than anyone can ever imagine or fathom. Lord, I pray that you work in the hearts of this church this morning. Lord, whatever it is that you're calling us to, Lord, it is for such a time as this. There is purpose in our life, Lord. There is reason in our life. There is meaning in our life. Lord, help us see you through it all. Lord, if we feel like you're not in our life, if we feel like our circumstances are hard or we're in a storm and we're crying out, Lord, where are you? Just because we can't see you or we don't feel you or we don't hear you doesn't mean you're not there, Lord. Lord, you are always present. And just like the book of Esther, maybe we can't see you, but we know you're there. We can trust you. We can hold faithful to your promises, Lord. Lord, transform our hearts, renew our spirits this morning. Allow us to be faithful in every part of our life and hand it all over to you at the foot of the cross. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.